You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 124. in your house is very bad. <laughs> Nobody wants that. You don't want a fire burning right next to your town. But to basically be saying that if we do a bunch of logging, we can stop these fires out in the remote areas. Not only is that wrong because it does, the logging doesn't stop those big fires, but do you even really want to because those fires are ecologically necessary? Welcome to another episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. The clip you just heard was from today's guest on the show, Monica Bond from the Wild Nature Institute. Monica was one of our first guests on the podcast more than two years ago. She was featured in episode six of the show. At that time, we had recently completed two short films about the research and conservation work being conducted at the Wild Nature Institute in Tanzania, and we'll get a quick update on these important conservation projects going on in East Africa before delving into the main topic of today's conversation, the ecological importance of the hottest, most intense forest fires. We have just released a new short film produced in partnership with the Wild Nature Institute on this topic called A New Message for Smokey. You can check out the film on the show notes page for this episode at wildlensinc.org slash EOC124. Welcome back to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, Monica. Matthew, it's delightful to be talking with you again. We have a long and fruitful history with the Wild Lens. You made two lovely videos for, for us um, three or four years ago which have been extremely helpful for our public education work that we're doing for conservation of hoofed mammals in Africa. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Um, like I said, you're one of the few folks that we've had back on the show for a second time, uh, but it's been a, it's been a while um, since we chatted with you about uh, all the super interesting research and outreach and education work that you're doing in, in Tanzania. Um, and East Africa. But we also have this uh, exciting new project that, that we've been collaborating with the Wild Nature Institute on this new video about forest fire and the impacts of forest fire suppression and this sort of effort to shift the paradigm about how people think about forest fire. So let's dig into this. I mean, to start things off, uh, since a lot of people probably haven't heard that first interview we did on the podcast uh, years ago. Um, tell me a little bit more about the Wild Nature Institute. What inspired the creation of this organization? So our organization is called the Wild Nature Institute, and our mission is to conduct scientific research on threatened species and their habitats, advocate for their protection, and educate, educate the public and decision makers about the need to preserve wild nature. So um, my partner, Derek, and I have both been doing wildlife research and conservation for more than 20 years now. <laughs> and we're always seeking to discover scientific data that will inform the decisions that we make as a society about how to steward our natural resources. And we were inspired to create the Wild Nature Institute seven years ago because we wanted to put our science into action. And we're both scientist activists who've always been directly involved in pushing for data-driven solutions to protect biodiverse wildlife habitat and ensure the long-term sustainability of the material and spiritual nourishment that wild nature provides to us. 
And the Wild Nature Institute allows us to conduct important conservation research as well as be able to promote our results through public education and advocacy. And I love that. I love that you have this this connection between doing the on-the-ground research and the importance of conveying that message and conveying the information that, that you're receiving directly from that research. To a lot of folks, it seems like common sense, like, you know, you have to disseminate this knowledge. But um, I, I think for a lot of people, there is that disconnect there, like that should be somebody else's job. So many scientists do um, think that just publishing research results in an academic journal, and that's enough. Mm-hmm. But it actually really isn't. There needs to be a bridge between the um, academic research and the, and the scientific publications and then making on the ground conservation happen using the results of that research. It's very important to us. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the yeah. reasons why our two organizations have, uh, you know, had this fruitful collaboration is because we we agree wholeheartedly on that central concept of the importance of, of that. So uh, the Wild Nature Institute, I mean, you've been doing these, these uh, long-running research projects in, uh, in Tanzania and, and East Africa. Those, those first videos that we produced together were about your giraffe research um, and then also this effort to protect a uh, migration corridor for, for ungulates in, in Tanzania. Like I said, this was the main focus of, of these previous videos that, that we produced in collaboration with Wild Nature, Nature Institute, as well as the previous podcast interview uh, uh, that we did with you. We are also going to dig into this other facet of the work and the research that Wild Nature Institute does uh, about forest fire uh, and, and sort of the importance it has for, for ecosystems. But before we get into that, um, you know, maybe you can give us an update on like what's going on with, with the, the giraffe research that you're doing and uh, the protection of this uh, migratory corridor for ungulates. Let's talk about giraffes first. Thanks. And yeah. so um, unfortunately, the sad news is that wild giraffes are not doing well. Over the past couple of decades, their populations have decreased nearly 40 percent Africa wide. And in Tanzania, where we're working, the population of giraffes is less than half of what it used to be in 1980. And you may have heard um, recent news is that the species, there's one species of giraffe in Africa, and the species as a whole has been um, reclassified in, on the IUCN red listing from previously it was least concerned and now it's vulnerable to extinction. So there was actually quite a bit of news about that. So people are becoming more and more aware of the problems that giraffe are facing and that their numbers are declining. And the main problems for giraffe are human-caused habitat destruction, largely for agricultural development and fuel wood cutting, loss of trees that they need to eat for cutting fuel and for making charcoal, as well as illegal killing for meat. And so the goal of our Maasai giraffe conservation science is to understand where giraffes are doing well and where they're not and why, and ultimately to protect and connect the places that are most important for giraffes. And so how are we doing this? We are doing this by conducting the world's largest individual-based demographic study of giraffes. So we use pattern recognition software to track more than 2,000 individual giraffes in a 3,500-square-kilometer area. And the results from what we we, um, get from the monitoring is to understand births, deaths, and movements in the fragmented Terengiri ecosystem of northern Tanzania. And the goal, again, um, is to inform conservation and land management and help ensure a future for giraffes. 
So in the five years, actually, we're in our sixth year there now. So in the um, five years that we've been collating our data and publishing research, we found that the giraffe population in the Tarangiri ecosystem is declining, and it's most likely from people illegally killing adult giraffes for their meat. But we also found that we are studying um, populations, subpopulations of giraffe throughout the Tarangiri ecosystem, and we found that the different subpopulations are still connected by movements of adult giraffes, including they're crossing busy tarmac roads and farmlands. So they, they're still a metapopulation that's functioning in that area, but it's important to protect and maintain the connectivity between the different subpopulations. And one of my actual favorite results from our research is the connection between the migratory wildebeest and the giraffes. And so what we discovered is that migratory herds of wildebeest and zebras deflect lion predation away from giraffe calves. So this is actually helping giraffe populations. So basically what we found is that wherever the migratory herds were, were at any given time, the survival of giraffe calves was higher there because it reduced the predation pressure from the lions. And so I love this because it really demonstrates the complex web of life and how if we want to save one species, in this case giraffes, we really need to save all the components of the ecosystem. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And, and yeah, it adds another important reason as to why we should be protecting the, these migration corridors. Absolutely. So yeah, so in general, the research results underscore the critical importance of maintaining those habitat linkages between protected areas, not only for giraffes, but also for the migratory species, and also simultaneously reducing poaching. So those are the, those are the two main things that we can do to um, conserve and protect the populations of giraffes and migratory species, and indeed all the species in this ecosystem. We can do those if we can reduce poaching and protect the linkages and protect the critical habitats, then I think we're going to be okay there. It's so fascinating to me that you can have a species like the giraffe that is familiar to everybody in the world, probably. Um, And yet there are these huge gaps in the knowledge that we have on just basic natural history of this species. And you know, it's just it's it's striking to me that now we're in this time where draft populations are crashing. Um, they're declining really precipitously across the African continent. And it's it's sort of like, oh, my God, we need to find out everything we possibly can about giraffes. Like you need that natural history information now in order to figure out what can be done to protect them and to yeah. prevent that. decline. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The main, the main problem is, of course, something that's a problem around the world, which is a, an ever-increasing human population, and there's demands on the resources um, of these habitats. People need to spread out and build farms and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, really what we need to learn to do is figure out how giraffes and people can live together. The Wild Nature Institute is also you know, involved in finding solutions to these issues and, and doing the outreach and education and uh, trying to figure out how to make that possible, You know, a world where humans and giraffes can live together. So, uh, I mean, tell me a little bit about the efforts that you guys have been involved with on, on that end, on the education and outreach side. So, as you mentioned, um, giraffes are very popular. They are also popular in Tanzania. It's the national animal. And people do love giraffes. You don't see a lot of um, conflict. There's not, um, they don't eat people's crops. They don't kill people. Uh, so there's not a lot of human-wildlife conflict with giraffes. It's just that they're quite sensitive to loss of habitat and expansion of, of uh, human habitation. 
So, um, but people do love them there. And so we're using giraffes as a focal species to inspire the next generation of Tanzanian conservationists. And over the past year, the Wild Nature Institute and our partners here in Tanzania developed giraffe-themed educational materials for children and teachers. And these materials use the giraffe to teach biology, geography, science, math, even language skills. And we created a storybook, Juma the Giraffe. I know you have a copy of that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and an activity book, a poster that describes the really wonderfully weird anatomy and behavior of giraffes. And we also developed lesson plans and activity guides for parents and teachers. And these materials help teachers meet the Tanzanian government mandate for environmental education in primary and secondary schools here. So there's a mandate to teach environmental education, but there's not a lot of guidance and certainly not a lot of materials. So we're really helping teachers to meet that goal. And so over the past year, the giraffe books and posters are being shared with 6,000 school children from 50 schools all over Tanzania. And we've really focused on areas where giraffes live. So these are communities that live around the national parks where what um, the actions that they take can help giraffes to survive in those areas. And we also hosted workshops for teachers where the teachers had a wonderful time learning the lesson plans and practicing the hands-on activities that they'll use in the classroom to accompany the giraffe-themed books and posters. And another thing we did that was really fun, and I'm hoping that we can do more, is we worked with partners to celebrate the first ever Giraffe Day at a secondary school in the Burungi area of Tarangire. And um, the Burungi area is a region that's part of, it's a village wildlife management area, and it provides important linkage habitat between Tarangire National Park and Lake Minyara National Park. These are the two national parks in the ecosystem where we work. And this is important linkage habitat. It ensures the freedom to roam for giraffes and uh, wildebeests and other wildlife. So we focused on that area. And Giraffe Day included fun environmental education activities. We had a a giraffe quiz, a school cleanup, arts and crafts, dramatic performances about giraffes. The kids did plays um, and also sports. And um, they had a really, really fun time. And the winners of the giraffe quiz actually received a trip to Tarangiri National Park. So we're hoping to do more of those uh, celebrations in honor of Tanzania's national animal. And of course, this is important because it's a way to share not only with students, but also their parents and teachers ways that people, local people can help giraffes. For example, planting trees and using fuel efficient stoves to maintain the habitat that giraffes need to survive. It's so awesome to hear about how engaged you are with the local communities and, and doing all this outreach and getting into into local schools. It's so important to be involved on that level rather than to just do the research and 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 and, and leave, you know, and publish and leave that to someone else, you know. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And yeah. and the other thing I'll just mention is that you know you you talked about the the Juma Juma the giraffe book that uh, you wrote and and was published by Wild Nature Institute. And I mean one of the other things that I love about what you guys are doing is that you know that book is available for for folks to purchase here in the U.S. And I bought a copy for my three year old son. It's one of his favorite books. It provides a really fantastic way for folks here in the U.S., folks all over the world to be involved in giraffe conservation, right? I mean, you you purchase this book, yeah. which supports the research and education work that you guys are doing in Tanzania. And it also provides me with a way to educate 
you know, my son about the ecosystems of Africa and all these important topics, right? And a sort of in a way that's fun that he enjoys. So that's right. That's right. It's a, it's about um, partly about giraffes, and you can use it as an opportunity to educate about giraffes and uh, and celebrate them even in the U.S. because it really takes a world community to save species, doesn't it? And then also, the, I think that the theme of Juma the giraffe is something that's sort of a universal theme. It's about how um, every individual is unique and special, both on the outside and on the inside. So, you know, it's partly about giraffes and then also partly about um, what makes us the same and what makes us different. So um, for for those of you listening to the podcast, you'll have to purchase the book to find out the story. Um, But also along with the book, you can download um, lesson plans that were designed for teachers and parents. There's a pattern matching game that you can actually, your kids can try to match uh, real photos of giraffe patterns because every giraffe has a unique pattern. And so we have pictures of giraffes from two different days and they have to match the, the patterns, which is fun. And uh, uh, there's a giraffe facts and a host of other activities, fun things that parents and teachers can do with kids to, to learn about giraffes and also just general learning techniques. And I have to just say, I think you were one of the first ones to buy the Juma Giraffe book in the U.S. So thank you. I think I emailed that to you, too. I said you're, you might be one of the first ones. So thank you for that, your, your uh, long support for, for the work that we do. You bet. And actually, we are doing um, – we have a, another uh, campaign we're just rolling out that is because the giraffe education uh, campaign was so successful, we decided to broaden it out to include Africa's two other terrestrial mega herbivores the elephant and the rhinoceros. And so now we have a project called Celebrating Africa's Giants. And we have a children's book on elephants and another one we're doing about rhinoceros and posters and um, same kind of educational materials focused on the three mega herbivores, Africa's giants, and their important role in the ecology of the savanna and just how cool they are. Awesome. That's exciting. So are, the, are, are those books out or is that, that uh, work in progress? Yeah, work in progress, work in progress. Work in progress. Okay. So uh, I, I do want to kind of shift focus a little bit here and, and talk about, you know, some of the, the, the research work that the Wild Nature Institute has been involved with here in North America. Um, and this is where we get to talk about forest fire. So, I mean, maybe just start off by telling me a little bit, like, how did this become uh, an area of, of research interest for you? This work predates any of the work that I've been doing in Africa. I've actually been working on fire ecology in California's forest for the past 17 years. Um, That's when I first began conducting field research with spotted owls. And uh, so the spotted owl is one of the most iconic old growth dependent bird species. And it typically nests and roosts and forages in dense conifer and mixed conifer oak forests that are dominated by big old trees and large decadent snags and fallen logs. And also high levels of canopy cover from overhead foliage is another important component of nesting and roosting stands. So it had long been presumed that spotted owls were seriously harmed when severe fire burned the forest canopy. Yet, the forests where these owls live have experienced mixed and high-severity fire for millennia. And the earlier habitat assessments, when I first started studying spotted owls, were done in forests where fire had not recently occurred. So I was curious as to how these birds actually respond when severe fire affects habitat within their home ranges. 
And I, I actually published one of the first papers about the effects of fire on spotted owl site fidelity, mate fidelity, and reproductive success back in 2002. And it really piqued my interest, and I've been working on this issue ever since. And my colleagues and I, to date, have actually produced more peer-reviewed scientific articles about spotted owls and fire than any other scientists. So, okay, what have we found in those 17 years of research? So research by Wild Nature Institute has demonstrated that spotted owls can survive and successfully reproduce within territories that have experienced moderate and high severity fire. And we also found that the owls hunt in severely burned forests when it's available. So I would say, um, based on this research and the research of other people, that the overall story is spotted owls use severely burned forests to hunt for their food, and they nest in roost in the more lightly burned or unburned forests. So they thrive within a mosaic of burn severities. Mm. But I also want to note that severe fire can burn a pretty large portion of a spotted owl territory without causing abandonment. Mm. So it's not just, yes, they, they really, they do like a mosaic of burn severities, but to, to kind of broach that issue of the larger fire, uh, it, we have found that fire can burn a very large portion of an owl territory and the owls are still there. And we found this in the Rim Fire near Yosemite. And also in Southern California, where fire weather is really quite extreme. That's about spotted owls. And I also worked on a research project of black-backed woodpeckers in the Lassen National Forest. So mm. this is a species that you have there in Idaho. Um, this species is featured quite prominently in our new video that we produced with Wild Lens. And it's really a poster child for the ecological importance of severely burned forests, really big megafires. This bird has the highest densities and the highest reproductive success in the largest patches of the most heavily burned forests. And scientists actually believe that its black back helps it to blend into the charcoal color of the burned trees where it forages and nests. So the question is, why does it love the severely burned forests? Well, it starts with its high-quality food, which is wood-boring beetle larvae. The wood-boring beetle adults have specialized organs that can sense smoke and heat from a fire from miles away. And these beetles flock to the burn forest to lay their eggs on the freshly dead trees. These newly killed trees still have sap in them, but they can no longer, because they're dead, they can't pitch out the beetles. So the beetles' eggs hatch, and then the larvae bore into the sapwood of the dead trees, and they remain there, just munching away, for one or two years before emerging. And so after a big, hot, severe fire, there's a super abundance of these beetle larvae inside these snags, these dead trees. And the blackback woodpeckers are feasting on the super abundant food source. So it's really good food, you know, high quality food for them. These beetle larvae are really big. And the woodpeckers also like these freshly dead trees to create nesting cavities in. So these newly dead trees are ideal nesting spots because the bark is still really hard hasn't broken down yet or desiccated. It makes the cavities really safe. In fact, during my um, research, my field work, I twice came upon blackback woodpecker nests that we were monitoring. So the nestlings were still inside there. And as I came upon the nest, I saw that black bear had tried to rip into the cavity to get, the, to, get to the woodpecker nestlings inside. Two times I saw this. And wow. both times, the nestlings were completely safe because the hard wood had protected them. Right. And then 
Furthermore, when the woodpecker nestlings have fledged, their cavities become prime real estate for secondary cavity nesters that can't excavate their own holes, species like mountain bluebirds Mm. and house wrens. They love woodpecker cavities. And um, woodpeckers not only create the single cavity for themselves, but actually during part of the mating ritual, the males will excavate numerous cavities throughout their territory. And so this really creates a lot of potential nesting cavities for these secondary cavity nesters. And not only did I see healthy populations of all kinds of woodpeckers and bluebirds and house wrens, but so many other bird species reach their highest numbers in these severely burned forests. Hollow-slided flycatchers, western wood peewees, green-tailed towhees, lazuli buntings, these species do very well. And also, uh, several studies have found that many bat species reach their greatest numbers in severely burned forests, um, probably uh, feeding on the, the insects from the um, from the new growth and also emerging aquatic insects in these severely burned forests too. And deer, they love to forage on the new shrub growth after a severe fire, and they can also find protective cover among the dead trees. You have many plants, fire-loving plants, mushrooms like fire morels. You like eating morels? They thrive in these high-severity high burn forests. So what's the message from this fire research? The message is that because so many plants and animals actually do best in severely burned forests. This tells us that, that these plants and animals have evolved with severe, severe fire over many thousands of years, and therefore this kind of fire is natural. It doesn't destroy habitat. It actually creates excellent habitat, and that's why we titled our video A New Message for Smokey. Smokey has actually been sending the wrong message about fire for more than 50 years, Fire doesn't destroy, it creates. And yes, fire in your house is a terrible thing. And if your house is in a fire-prone forest, you really need to ensure that it's built with the most fire-resistant materials uh, possible and that you've created defensible space within 100 feet of your house and that also you have an evacuation plan for your safety. But fire in the forest is not a terrible thing. It's actually something we should celebrate because it creates rare and critical habitat for so many species. So when a large fire has burned in the forest, the best thing we can do is grab a pair of binoculars and go out and have fun watching the life that thrives in these areas. These are ecological treasure troves. And I love to tell this message because it's such a positive one. Uh, When we hear about a big forest fire, we don't have to panic or fear for wildlife. It's actually perfectly natural and has been burning like that for thousands of years. It wasn't that long ago that we were still actively involved, and by we, I mean, I guess I mean sort of the U.S. government, right, at least here in North America, actively involved in in fire suppression, right, just shutting down all fires. Oh, still are, still are, absolutely still are. Right, and and absolutely, they, you know, uh, we certainly still are to to a large extent, right? But I mean, I, I think there has been in the last... 10 or 20 years, you know, a a pretty dramatic shift in the mindset that people have towards forest fire, right? Um, I I mean, I think most, maybe not most people, but I think a lot of people understand that, you know, this sort of message that that we grew up hearing about Smokey the Bear, um, you know, is a bit wrongheaded, right? And that to a certain extent, fire is... Uh, a natural component of of many ecosystems, especially here in the American West, right? But I think, you know, the the message that you're saying, you know, goes 
a few steps beyond that because i think you know as we've seen this this shift in the mindset and this you know uh, the development of this understanding that fire does play a natural role in many ecosystems i think most people assume that the reason why we see these very high intensity fires you know these huge crown fires that just burn enormous swaths of land and those types of fires are not natural and that those types of fires are a product of you know, essentially a century of fire suppression and the accumulation of lots and lots of fuels, whereas normally, you know, you would have a a much smaller sort of fire return interval. Um, But also climate change, right, is also Mm -hmm. blamed Mm -hmm. for these really high intensity fires. Um, And so, you know, despite the fact that I think there has been this dramatic shift in the mindset that people have towards forest fire, uh, what you're saying is still very radical, you know, for, for most people. Most people, I think you know, view these high intensity fires in a different way than uh, a sort of, you know, a, a smaller fire that happens in the undergrowth that doesn't like reach up to the crowns of, of, of any of the trees. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what kind of responses you've gotten to this research and, and the, the publications that, that Wild Nature Institute has put out on this um, and, and the education that you've done related to this issue? Yes, there. you've hit the nail on the head there. There has actually been pushback. And I think the reason why Smokey Bear and the Forest Service promote anti-fire hysteria, because that's what they do. They promote anti-fire hysteria in terms of these big fires. They, they say that these areas are moonscapes, that uh, they're, they're destroyed for these very large fires. Um, it's because the agency and timber companies they benefit financially from logging the forest in the name of fire, and they actually get a blank check to fight fires. They log the forest to prevent fire. They log the forest when they're fighting fire, and they log the forest after fire. And this is the true harm to forests, not fire, but logging, because fire is natural. And so, yes, it's true that in the past few decades, we've seen fires get larger, fire sizes get larger. But the proportion of high severity fire in any any given fire is the same. And actually, the last uh, few decades, really, <laughs> the past we, the the baseline that that has been used to say fires are getting larger is a really 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 short time span in the life of the forest. So it's only been the last hundred years or so that people are looking at. When in fact, if you go back over the evolutionary history of the forest and its species. If you go back thousands of years, you'll find that there have definitely been times when the climate was drier and warmer and you got really, really large fires. They are not unnatural. And that's why you have so many species that thrive and do so well and reach their highest densities in the most severely burned big fires. So Again, it's natural, and this is research from Wild Nature Institute and a host of other scientists. Again and again, there's so much life in these severely burned forests, but because the timber industries and the Forest Service have such a financial interest in logging and in firefighting, they've really pushed back and either ignored or actively tried to dismiss the science because it disproves their justifications for logging. But I agree with you. I think we've really made a lot of strides in getting fire accepted as natural, but We've also been taught for so long that a forest is green. And yeah, maybe you can have some fire that burns in the undergrowth, but that when it becomes a blackened forest, 
that are in our minds now, there's something wrong with that. But that's actually not true. So we have seen a big reluctance to accept that large severity fire is natural and creates important habitat. And we still hear the false message that there is good fire and bad fire. And that's simply not scientifically supported. Fire just is. It occurs. It's natural in Western forests. It's, it's happened before. The last hundred years have been relatively cool. So you haven't had as many of the very large fires. Now it's getting warmer and the fires are getting bigger like it has in the past. And the overwhelming positive response from so many species of plants and animals tells us that this has been natural for a very long time because they have evolved to be able to take advantage of it. And there, there may be some species that win with a big fire and some that lose. But actually, there's far more green forests out in the landscape than burn forests. So in a sense, when you, when you hear of a big fire burning, it's actually restorative. It's restoring habitat for the fire-loving species. And I, I want to point out, um, I think another factor in the reluctance to accept the big, severe fires is our own brains. And interesting psychological research has found that people are extremely reluctant to change their long-held views, even when faced with scientific evidence contradicting their views. And this has been demonstrated with people who believed Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. There was actually a study done out of, uh, uh, I think it was Dartmouth College. And these people refused to change their belief that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, even when shown evidence from none other than the Bush administration that Iraq did not, in fact, have weapons of mass destruction. So when a certain belief is something that people associate with their own identities, it's really hard to change that. But we really have to overcome this because the forest is just too important, too precious for us to be damaging it under false pretenses. Well, we, we live in a world of alternative facts these days. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> right. that, that study right. you mentioned has, has relevancy yeah. well beyond the forest fire issue, I think. <laughs> yeah, people just kind of believe what they want to believe. Yeah. But uh, I, I really feel confident that science will prevail here that we really have enough of it now. And there's so many scientists that are kind of uh, raising the, uh, you know, raising the, the flag in support of high severity fire that um, I, I, do, I do see hope that the paradigm will change. So uh, my question for you is, is related to, to fire management, right? We, we can certainly agree that there is no place for fire suppression in efforts to, to manage a healthy ecosystem. But you've been talking about like what these ecosystems have looked like in the past and sort of the evidence that high severity fires you know, uh, have been common when you look at the evolutionary history uh, and the natural history of some of these species that, that rely on those types of ecosystems that are created by high intensity fires. However, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the ecosystems of Western North America have been actively managed by humans for more than 10,000 years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we can't just talk about the relationship between humans and fire in sort of a, a, a you know, post-European contact with the Americas context, right? We have to understand that these ecosystems have been actively managed for probably 10,000 years or more. Um, yeah, so, with fire. <laughs> right, with fire, exactly. And so, <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I, I guess, like, what I'm wondering is, I mean, it, it, the way you talk about this, you know, you sort of say, like, oh, well, when there's a really high-intensity fire, like, we should just stand back and sort of watch the natural process unfold. And, and I guess my question to you is, like, given that we do have, us humans as a species have 10,000-year history of active management of 
these ecosystems using fire, like, is there a place for fire management? Wait, wait, let's talk about the big fires then, because this is what's of concern. So even the Forest Service's own science shows that during extreme fire weather, when the largest fires burn more than 90% of the acreage in a given year, fires like the Rim Fire or the King Fire, I'm, I'm talking about ones in California, but the, mm-hmm. the, the fires that actually burn the largest amount of acres in any given year, they burn during extreme fire weather. And no amount of thinning or fuels reduction can stop those fires. They burn right over and through the thinned forests. So we, we just need to end the lie that logging can stop these big fires in the forest because it can't. Instead, we need to focus our limited money and our efforts on making our houses and properties firewise. We can build or retrofit our houses with fire-safe materials and plan safe emergency evacuation routes. That's what's going to work. And there are many ways that houses and properties can be made to be less vulnerable to fire. And if folks out there are interested, uh, you should really check out the website for the Missoula Fire Sciences Laboratory. It's firelab.org. And CAL FIRE also has a lot of good information about defensible space on their website. So what I'm saying is that the firefighting and the suppression really needs to be focused on areas immediately around houses and towns. And we need to stop putting the lives of firefighters at risk by having them try to suppress these big fires that are burning miles away from human infrastructures. And this is because, I'll say it again, fires in the remote forests create ecologically critical habitat. So trying to put them out is not only dangerous, but completely unnecessary. So I do think there's a place for fire suppression, but it should be focused on the areas right around human communities. And then we, we really don't need to be putting our firefighters at risk, uh, putting them out in these remote forests, trying to stop these fires, which they really can't do anyway um, during extreme fire weather. And, you know, you mentioned this in the video, and I just reiterate it here. We, re- we once thought that old growth forests were decadent and that we should clear them out and plant young new forests. But then we realized what folly that was. The old growth forests are amazing, full of richness and life, and we provided protections for those forests. And I see the very same thing happening here. And I see the same need here with severely burned forests. Instead of fearing forest fire and cutting down the burned forests, the the post-fire salvage logging, we really need to embrace the beauty of these blackened forests. Realize that it's not just green that's a forest, but it's also black that's a forest. We need to embrace their beauty and their ecological importance and provide them with the protections they deserve. And (laughs) the woodpeckers, and the owls and the bats and the morel mushrooms and all the other fire-loving species will thank us for that. So, I mean, you touched on what I think is the number one, I guess, excuse that the U.S. Forest Service and other government agencies tasked with fire management and fire suppression and also these logging companies sort of present as the reason behind what they're doing, which is protecting homes, right? They're not talking, I mean, that's the, uh, maybe they are talking a little bit about sort of the health of those ecosystems, but like, it seems like the focus is on protecting human communities, right? And protecting yes, houses. And it should be. That, mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, what, what you're saying is that there is this research that shows that essentially the approach they're taking is just doesn't make sense for achieving yeah. that goal yeah. of protecting homes. So, I mean, t- talk to me a little bit more about that research, because, I mean, I think that's really interesting, and I think that's something that a lot of people are not aware of, um, of, like, what research has actually been done to demonstrate, you know, what the most effective approach is towards protecting homes from fire. 
Right. Yeah. Well, um, if you go to that uh, firelab.org, you'll see research um, uh, by a really uh, wonderful researcher named Dr. Jack Cohen. Um, He and his colleagues have found that you can have a huge, huge forest fire burning 100 feet from your home. And if your home and the property around your home is firewise, then you have a low probability of your house catching on fire. So there's definitely things you can do. Putting uh, screens and uh, c- covering up the, the vents going into your house. Of course, um, building with uh, fire-resistant materials, slate and that kind of thing instead of wood. Having Don't have wooden fences that come into your house because that actually can carry fire towards your house. And then, and then keeping the area clear up to about 100 feet. And this, these, these measures work really well in making your house much less vulnerable to burning in a, a forest fire. And that's all we really need to do. And you can, you can design your communities to have um, sort of open space around your towns. Um, but, but anything beyond just immediately around your homes and immediately around the town, there, there isn't any need. And again, I, I feel like it does a disservice to people to keep promoting the lie that logging out in the remote forest is going to help save homes that are at risk of burning because it's not. It's actually a waste of, of our money and our efforts to be doing that. And I circle it back around to the reason that's happening is for financial interests that logging companies in the Forest Service have in doing that logging. But it has nothing to do with a need for stopping fire in the forest, and it has nothing to do with protecting homes and property. So we really, we have limited funds. Let's focus it on what works to help people and let the fire burn naturally in the forest like it has for millennia, creating wonderful habitat for so many species. So I I wonder if there are any examples of good management, right? I mean, are are there any, like, are there any areas, are there any uh, localities, you know, within the U.S. or, I mean, anywhere in the world that have set up a system, you know, based on the most current relevant science that we can sort of point to and say, like, look, these folks are doing it the right way? Yeah, I would say visit your national parks. I think they're doing a really good job. They have let burn policy. And, um, and they they also do just up their sort of protection is around the, the infrastructure within the parks. And, um, but then they, they have a let burn policy. And they actually do a lot of education about fire. I do think, however, they still are, are bought in a little bit at times with the good fire, bad fire, false paradigm. Um, so hopefully that will change. But I do think that our, our national parks do a pretty good job of, of dealing with fire. So I think that's a, that's a good example right there. Still a little ways to go, but a pretty good example. Mm-hmm. And also I have to say that, that Forest Service districts vary. They vary by district. And in some, I think in some cases some are better than others. So I'm not, uh, I don't want to um, basically put the blame on, on the entire Forest Service because I think some, some ranger districts and some national forests are better than others with the fire issue. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, like, how you think about or how Wild Nature Institute thinks about approaching the solution to this issue, right? Because, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that this is being caused by big money interests, right? I mean, massive corporate logging companies that are probably spending lots of money lobbying the U.S. government um, to make sure that the Forest Service continues to, A, you know, provide the permits that allow them to log, you know, both 
before and after large fires, but also that perpetuate this system and and keep the Forest Service spending insane amounts of money on suppression activities. So, like, how do you get like <laughs> like that? That's that's a huge problem, right? Like, how do you wrap your mind around like how to fix that? Well, I just keep going back to the science and hope that the science is pointing the way. And in fact, what the science does show is that in unmanaged forests like national parks and wildernesses, you actually have less high severity fire than in the most heavily managed forests. So again, pulling the rug out from that false premise that logging is going to protect the forest from fire, again, assuming that we even need to protect the forest from fire because fire creates ecologically important habitat. But the point is, is that uh, the, the areas that are, have larger trees, that are older, that are less managed, they actually burn less severely. And that's what the science is showing. So there is not a need to do that kind of logging in order to protect the forest from fire, which I don't even think we need to do. But, uh, you know, again, it's just a, a, the wrong place to spend our money and our time. And it's not going to work. It just isn't going to work to do logging out in the remote areas of the forest. So we just need to let the forest do what it does and create its wonderful habitat, create patches of big high severity burn, and then also have areas of green forest. And that's what's going to uh, enable our ecosystems to be healthy and thriving. Do you have any plans to write a new children's book about the importance of these ecosystems? That is a fantastic idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. I'm just you saying here, I can envision a whole story a with the spotted owl yeah. and the black-backed woodpecker. Yeah. 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 We could have mor- morel mushroom character, a wood-boring beetle. Yeah. Just basically. Well, all those animals that say, hey, we need our habitat, too. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe that's another uh, uh, avenue for uh, collaboration between Wildlands and Wild Nature Institute down the road. I look forward to it. I'll yeah. hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, yeah. Monica, for, for coming on the show again and, and sharing these really important perspectives, both on con- this important conservation work being done in, in East Africa, um, but also um, about this really important message about the importance of high severity fires um, and the ecosystems that they create. So thank you. Thank you, Matthew. And I do urge all the folks listening to, to definitely take it upon yourselves to learn more, um, dig into the science. And then also when a big fire has burned out in the forest, grab your binoculars uh, the next year, go out there and see for yourselves how wonderful and full of life these areas are. All right. That was our conversation with principal scientist and co-founder of the Wild Nature Institute, Monica Bond. Monica's message about the importance of severely burned forest habitat is extremely important, not just because of the impact that it has on wildlife, but because of its importance for human communities. The federal government continues to spend enormous sums of money on fire suppression activities that actually do nothing to protect human communities from fire. This has to change, and maybe this new video that we've produced in partnership with the Wild Nature Institute can play some small role in shifting people's perspective on this issue. The film is called A New Message for Smokey, and we'll have it posted on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC124. If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. And if you want to help new people find the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. 
We will be eternally grateful for this. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.